both Bible colleges I attended. I'm divorced and remarried. On any given day, I am capable of being a jerk with my wife and my family. I am terminally insecure. At times, people irritate me and I hide from them. I'm impulsive, which causes me to say things I shouldn't and make promises I cannot keep. I am inconsistent. My walk with Christ is a staggering, stumbling, bundling attempt to follow Him. At times His presence is so real I can't stop the tears. And then, without warning, I can't find Him. Some days my faith is strong, in, impenetrable, uh, immovable, and some days my faith is weak, pathetic, helpless, knocked about like a paper cup floating on the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. I have been a Christian for 45 years, but I'm still a mess. I am light years away from being able to say with Paul, copy me. I'm 56 years old and still struggle. A flawed, clumsy, unstable follower of Jesus. A bona fide failure. That bothers a lot of people. Some have abandoned me, not Jesus. He refuses to give up on me. Sometimes late at night when I'm about to give up and go to sleep, I know I have heard him weeping for me. You see, Jesus has a fatal flaw. He can't stay away from failures. He is a friend of failures, a lover of failures. Everyone else has given up. He seeks them out. The woman who failed at five marriages, the blind man by a pool who had failed to get his timing down for 38 years in a row, the disciple who failed at following, the thief who failed at keeping the law, the adulterous woman who failed at moral purity, the doubting disciple who failed to believe. Luke 14, 15 through 24, Jesus told a parable about failures. A wealthy man prepared a party for his successful friends. When the day of the party arrived, all the friends decided they couldn't come. So the host told his servant, go out and invite all the losers you can find, the drunks, the prostitutes, the homeless, the lame. The host threw the party for all the failures. Jesus was defining his church. He was making it clear that the church is more than a safe place for losers. Its membership is made up of losers, failures like you and me. Why is it then that so many Christians don't like failures very much unless they are reformed, long ago failures, ex-failures? Practicing failure seemed to be an embarrassment to today's upward, upwardly mobile Christianity. I don't understand why. As Henry Newman points out, Christians have always been downwardly mobile. We're unified by our common weakness, our common failures, our common disappointments, our common disillusionments, our common inconsistency. It is while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, that Jesus is attracted to us. It is our common failure that makes us desperate enough to look finally to the cross, to the body of Jesus, whose blood flows and mingles with ours and graces us with his forgiveness. That is why I love Jesus so much. But he was so well... Uh,
irresponsible with grace. He was so indiscriminate and reckless with forgiveness. Even more shocking, Jesus encouraged irresponsible grace by telling stories that suggested that acts of recklessness be followed by a party. In contrast, modern Christianity is so responsible with grace. It is almost as though Christ's church is afraid to squander grace, as though it was a limited resource that must be protected and dispensed cautiously. The grace dispensers worry that grace might be wasted or misused. So go ahead. The church can forgive one divorce, maybe two, but five? Okay, Christians can forgive adultery, but uh, we can't have sinners running wild in our churches, can we? And then there's the prodigal son. He dishonored his father. He wasted his inheritance, partied until it ended up a disgusting till he ended up a disgusting homeless mud covered foul smelling loser and he is supposed to be treated with a party Jesus responds to the grace dispensers with reckless forgiveness and lavish celebration we are saved by grace are we not gentlemen Amen. we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves it's a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast. Paul says we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So I think as we come together as brothers, we would all agree that uh, a right relationship with God excludes our works or what we do. But it is dependent upon God and His grace. God's gift of a restored relationship with Him. You see it in spades if you've ever done any uh, sharing of the gospel. And <clears throat> one of the questions, kind of a famous question that a lot of people ask is, they'll ask the non-believer, uh, uh, if you uh, died and, and went to heaven and stood before God, and uh, God said, why should I let you in my heaven? Uh, what would you say? And invariably, the answer you'll get to that question is some form of works, whether I'm, I'm trying to live a good life or I'm trying to keep the golden rule or I'm doing a lot better than the guys around me or whatever. But it's all a works mindset. And when you hear that, you, you, you say inside, man, let me, let me explain to you. Let me explain grace to you. That's the relationship. So I think all believers in Christ would agree that a proper relationship with Christ begins with the grace of God and grace only. Are we in common agreement on that? Now notice, when we talk about grace and relationship with God, that's what we're talking about, relationship. But we have not talked about accountability and consequences for our actions. We talked about relationship. The reason you and I as believers in Christ are going to go to heaven is because we have a relationship with a holy God who considered us, considers us righteous and holy because of the imputed righteousness of Christ upon us and our imputed, our sin being imputed to Christ. That's relationship. And it's relationship that determines who goes to heaven. 
Okay? Now, the question then, the logical question is, does grace eliminate consequences of our actions? I would suggest to you that both Christians and non-Christians innately understand that there are consequences to our actions. You ever heard some of these? But Christians and non-Christians. What goes around comes around. He will get his. It was just a matter of time. It finally caught up with him. You just knew it was coming. I would suggest to you that because we've all been created in the image of God, we all know, we all know that there's a judgment. We all know that we are going to be held accountable for our actions. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Let me, let me begin to read with verse 7. And I'll read down through 10. And then let's go back and make some comments on these, some of these passages. <coughs> verse 7. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's look at verse 7 for a minute. It says, do not be deceived. It's easy to be deceived today, isn't it? Tricked. Promise something that doesn't deliver. Or believe something that isn't true. And we can be deceiving ourselves in believing that God will not hold us accountable. Particularly because we're believers. Something about grace has done away with accountability. Paul says, don't be deceived. That's not true. He says, whatever you sow, so shall you reap. But remember that forgiveness does not negate consequences. Gentlemen, that's key to get in our thinking. Forgiveness, relationship with God, the grace of God, to make us children of God does not negate our having to live with the consequences of our actions. We may believe that somehow we can believe, beat the system. And most of us do. We've uh, probably driven above the speed limit. Didn't have any apparent consequences. And so we do things like that, and we get to believe in that, you know, somehow, somehow I'm going to beat the system. 
I'm going to beat the system. But Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mouthed. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And the Bible says you cannot beat the system. The writer of Hebrews says, for inasmuch as it is pointed for man to die, men to die once, and then comes the judgment. There is going to be a judgment for our consequences. Hold your finger in Galatians because we're going to come back here, but let's go over to 2 Corinthians 5.10. That's to your left. Next book over, chapter 5. Will someone stand and read that for us? Second Corinthians five ten. Not all at once. <laughs> for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Okay, thank you. Let me read that again, gentlemen. We need to have that soak in. For we must all, sounds pretty inclusive, doesn't it? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. What we do here, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For as a man soweth, so shall he reap. Verse 8, Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Gentlemen, this is the law of the harvest. A law is a law. It's irrefutable. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. We know very simply that if you sow wheat, you're going to reap wheat. If you sow tomatoes, you're going to reap tomatoes. If you sow friendship, you're going to reap friendships. If you're going to sow love, you're going to reap love. Sow generosity, you're going to reap generosity. Sow mercy, you're going to reap mercy. And Paul says you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Let me suggest to you that the flesh, as Paul is talking about it there, is that part of us who declares our autonomy from God. Flesh is any part of one's thinking or action not under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's the attitude that my will, not your will, Lord. And we may not be brave enough or blatant enough to say that, but our actions say it for us. That's the flesh. And then he says, if we sow into the Spirit, from the Spirit, we reap eternal life. Now let me suggest to you, gentlemen, here, in this verse, that the, unetern- the reaping eternal life here is not a reference to our going to heaven. 
Because we've already established that we're going to heaven based upon relationship with Christ is, and that is totally based upon the initiative of God, the grace of God. So we're not talking about relationship here. So then what are we talking about? We are talking about the eternal life here we're talking about is our state or position in hell or heaven. Not our present. Not our presence in heaven and hell. It's our state or position. Not our presence. Because our presence is based upon God's initiative. Our state or position in hell or heaven will be determined by sowing of our life. How we live our life here on earth, either in the flesh or in the spirit. We're saved by grace. That's relationship. We're rewarded by our works, what we sow, what we do. How we respond to life. Our faithfulness. Who put this on? <laughs> Saved by grace, we're rewarded by our works or what we do. Gentlemen, we live in a church today that, uh, as, Paul, as uh, Walt made the point earlier, is uh, the society is conforming the church to itself instead of the church conforming society. And I would suggest to you that one of the reasons is that uh, we don't want to acknowledge that we're going to be held accountable in heaven. We don't want to acknowledge that uh, there is not, that there's total equality in heaven. Yeah, we'll all be there. But there's going to be inequality in heaven. And that's going to be based upon, as a man sows, so shall he reap. I don't know about you, but that is a very sobering, sobering thought to me. Because understanding the law of harvest should make us more aware of our thoughts, of our words, and our actions. Since we will live with the consequences for eternity. And I think one of the things in the church is that we don't, we don't believe that. Or we ignore it. And we think that we can beat the system somehow. And Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. As a man sows, so shall he reap. So if you're going to take Paul at his word, then uh, it ought to make a tremendous difference in how we live this life, isn't it? Because... Um, if we know there are consequences, it does affect our behavior. Mm -hmm. Give you an illustration. I, well, three weeks ago, 
couple of my grandsons were down, and we were out in the swimming pool. And the swimming pool in the complex where we live is about uh, oh, a couple hundred yards from, from our home. And so uh, we were out there about 11, 11.30 at night, and uh, it's past my bedtime, but we were there. When you, when you run with a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old, that's what you do. You know? And so we're the only ones there, obviously. And so the younger, the 13-year-old loves to tease, tease and harass. And of course, I, I, uh, I don't help him any. I, I reciprocate. But at 11:30 at night, I had just about lost my patience with him, and he kept pushing me in the pool, horsing around like a 13-year-old does, as he begins to feel the testosterone moving in his body, you know. And uh, so I kept saying, "Leave me alone! Leave me alone!" Don't do that. Well, that just agged him on. So finally I said to him, Nathaniel, if you mess with me one more time, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your swimming suit off of you, and I'm not giving it back, and you're going to have to walk from here over to the house without any clothes on. You want to predict uh, uh, Nathaniel's behavior of the henceforth? Huh? Didn't have another problem. As we look at the law of the harvest, gentlemen, may it also affect our behavior. Because as a man sows, so shall he reap. Let me give. Let me just uh, give some observations. You guys can break in any time. I feel uh, very secure with you asking questions because uh, with Hendrickson and uh, McCurin here, I just turn it over to them. You know? <laughs> so just fire away any questions. So, so. got some observations and questions for you to ponder. One. If the law of the harvest applies to all men, then why does it appear that some wicked men prosper and seem to escape their consequences? You ever have that happen? You know, guys that just, they almost double their fist toward God, and yet, gosh, you watch their lives and their deals come together. And just It just looks like things just go for them. Well, Let's turn, turn with me, if you will, over to Psalm 37. The psalmist must have been making that same observation and uh, share some thoughts with us. Psalm 37. That's Old Testament. That's as close as I can get for you. <laughs> Here the page is moving, so we're getting there. Let's just quickly look at some, some verses. Let's look at verse 7. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Let your eyes go over to verse 10. Yet in a little while, while the wicked man will be no more. 
And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Drop down to verse 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Look at verse 20. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Look at verse 35. 35 and 36. I have seen a violent, wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in his native soil. Then he passes away, and lo, he is no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. The psalmist says, when we see that and ponder, we need to understand that the law of the harvest can be both in the temporal, or here on earth, and in eternity. And eternity is either going to be, for all men, either hell or heaven. But it's for sure going to be in eternity. So here's the, here's the key. The law of the harvest is correlative in the temporal, or in the world, and cause and effect in the eternal. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? The law of the harvest is correlative in the temporal and cause and effect in the eternal. Well, let's, let me illustrate uh, being correlated. Correlation. Farmer, wheat farmer, plants his wheat in the fall. He waits all winter. Come July or so, he, uh, he harvests a bumper crop. Next year, he uh, plants, works just as hard, plants his crop in the fall, uh, doesn't get a lot of moisture come July, and uh, he gets a half a crop. So the next year, he does the same thing, works just as hard, plants his wheat in the fall, come two weeks before harvest in July, a hail comes by, and it's all gone in one afternoon and he has no harvest. So he scratches his head and he said, you know, it appears that I don't have a lot of control over this. <laughs> and it really doesn't make any difference how hard I work because I've worked just as hard these three last three seasons and look at my crop. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm just not going to plant, plant any harvest or plant any uh, crop next fall. Now I'll just wait till July and see what kind of harvest I have then. <laughs> and you all smile and say, you better find another job, friend. So correlation says that he has to go to work. He has to plant it. But the results are unpredictable because they're not in his control. And so the law of the harvest is correlative in that it, we may or may not harvest in the temporal. But it's cause and effect in the eternal. Cause and effect says if I go over to this light switch and I push the switch, the light goes off. I push it again, it goes on. Off, on, off, on, off, on. That's predictable. That's a law. I control that. That's cause and effect. And the law of the harvest is correlative 
in the temporal, but it's cause and effect in the heart, in the um, in eternity. So when we see the uh, what we appears to be injustices with the rich or the wicked and their prospering, all we have seen is we have just taken a Polaroid snapshot. We haven't taken the video of the whole movie. And so, so it is, the law of the harvest. Second observation. Circumstances may not be indicative of the law of the harvest. <clears throat> Circumstances may not be indicative of the law of the harvest. The roof falls in on our life. We lose the job. Or you guys fill in the blank. Whatever it is. What's the first thing we think? What did I do? That's natural, isn't it? What did I do? Because see, instinctively, we know there's a law of the harvest, don't we? Just by asking that question. But our circumstances aren't necessarily indicative uh, that it is the law of the harvest, that it is tied to something we've done. And a great illustration, we won't go look at it, but is in over in John 9. Jesus um, heals a blind man who's been, a blind man who's been uh, blind since birth. And he heals him, and those around him say, Now, Jesus, let, let us understand this a little more. I said, Now, um, was it the sin of the man that was blind? Or was it the sin of his parents? Which one was it is the reason why he was blind? And Jesus says, Neither one. And he said, Well, what it? You mean he was blind? Just for the glory of God, for God's purposes, Jesus says, you got it right. No law of the harvest there, was it? So you're, you cannot, from your circumstances, necessarily tell whether it's the law of the harvest or not. Yes? i got a question for you. Now. Is it wrong for us to search... Uh, into some of those things. For example, you know, maybe you're going through a situation and maybe you're asking God, you know, what are you trying to teach me from this? Or you know, am I supposed to be learning something from that? Yeah, I think those are legitimate questions. Just understand, understand that it may not have anything to do with the law of the harvest. In fact, it is, you can't hardly draw the point between cause and effect, even if it is, unless it's just some blatant, uh, blatant um, incident, like uh, if someone has uh, sex with someone that has a venereal disease, why, you might be able to put that one together, cause and effect, or a guy jumps off of a building, you know, it, it's fairly obvious, you know, there's a cause and effect there, you know, the result. But beyond that, um, it just, it's just tough to put those so together. I expect an answer would be wrong. I would say you ask God, but 
But ultimately, ultimately, you're going to walk away in faith is what you're going to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Respond, I think regardless of whether it's related to the law of, of harvest or not, whatever experience we find ourselves in, God has put us there to learn something. We could, I think we can say that uh, God is sovereign, and so uh, it's not an accident. And so, uh, see, gentlemen, you cannot conclude from a business deal you do or an investment, and the thing goes belly up on you. That uh, that it was not the will of God. You can't conclude that. Okay, I obviously I, I thought it was the will of God when I went into this thing, but obviously it's not because see see that's flawed thinking. You don't want to go there. Just as if you enter a business deal or you make an investment and the thing just it, it's, it's more than what you wanted and expected you cannot conclude from that that that's necessarily God's pleasure because sometimes if we just keep insisting God will give us things that uh, he never intended us to have it may be a it may be a curse instead of a blessing. So it's really dangerous to try to draw those uh, lines because you just you just can't do it. And gentlemen, I believe the reason God has designed it that way is He says that uh, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And so God's designed it in such a way that it forces us into a posture of dependence and trusting Him. And we just don't know. Yes, sir. Yes. Quick question. Due to the fact that my wife isn't here to help me with vocabulary and indicative, can I ask if I understand this correctly? Just because something is or has gone wrong in your life doesn't mean that sin is causing it. It, it may not now. Or good. Right. Bad or, or anything e either way. in your life. Either way. It may not because you're, be because you're walking with God. See, gentlemen, that's why a term like a self-made millionaire is an absolute illusion. <laughs> Absolute. That's the that's the height of arrogance. Because you do not control. There is not a cause and effect between how hard you work and how much you make. There's a correlation. Going back to our farmer, you better plant you better plant the grain. But you do not control the result. So our circumstances may not be indicative that it was law of the harvest. Ready for the next one?
Okay? Well, if we, if there is a law of a harvest, in 2 Corinthians 5.10 says there is, and that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be recompensed for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. We know that's true. Then on what basis, on what basis is God going to judge us? And we could spend a couple hours on this, but I just want to give you enough to, uh, you can do some work on your own. And turn over with me to Romans chapter 2, if you would, for a moment. Romans chapter 2. want to give you some principles of judgment that God is going to use when we stand before Him and He deals with us with the consequences of our lives. And that's positive and negative. That's faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Okay? Notice verses... Uh, 1 through one through 3 says, uh, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things. Or do you suppose, O oh man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's saying, God's going to deal with us on the basis of our hypocrisy. We judge others, but we don't do it. That's hypocrisy. God doesn't like hypocrisy. The truth matters, we don't like hypocrisy, do we? So, we don't walk where we talk. Secondly, notice in verse 5 and 6, or in verse 6, says, He will render to every man according to his deeds. Every man according to his deeds. So that's... Notice verse 11. There is no partiality with God. So let's not think we can beat the system or we're an exemption or... God says we're all going to stand there there's no partiality. Then look at 12 through 15. Let me read that for us. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearer of the law are those before are just before God, but the doer of the law will be justified. So he's saying, if you're a Jew, if you're looking to the law, if that's your standard, then I'm going to judge you based upon that standard. Then in verse 14 and 15 he says, For when the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who do not have the law, the Mosaic law, 
do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending or else defending them. He says, if you don't have the Mosaic law, the truth of the matter is we've all got a law because we all judge. And we judge based upon whatever our standard or our law is. Do we not? And God says, pick your own, pick your own standard. I don't care. And I will judge you based upon your standard. So if you have a standard of mercy, then I'm going to base you on that standard. Judge you. If you don't show mercy, that's the standard I'm going to judge you on. And then the last one I want to point out is verse 16. It says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Jesus is going to judge us, is He not? And for you attorneys, it won't be a problem for Him like it is for some of you preparing for a trial. Is There's going to be full disclosure. It's going to be like Jesus is going to reach over and He's going to turn the video on and He's going to run our whole life. Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And then He's going to make some decisions. He's going to judge us based upon that. Positively and negatively. Well, that's the basis for judgment that we're all going to face. Again, when the law of the harvest is explained in this way, uh, it becomes very personal, doesn't it? And very important. Because our every thought, word, and action, gentlemen, in this life is going to affect us for eternity. And eternity is a long time compared to 60, 70, 80 years. Let me give you one more and then we'll quit. There is no such thing as a private sin. <coughs> Thought, word, or deed. There is no such thing as a private sin. Some of you may not remember this, but I, it stuck in my mind years ago. I think it was when Carter was uh, running for president. It was during the primary, and uh, one of the other men that was running, I was living in Colorado at the time, was our senator, a senator by the name of Gary Hart. And Gary was the, the leading candidate at the moment. And then some newspaper uh, reporter caught caught a picture of him on a boat down on the uh, off the coast of I think one of the Carolinas with this young lady in a swimming suit sitting on his lap and within 24 hours he was out of the race and I remember her name her name was Donna Rice and I remember seeing her uh, interviewed on TV afterwards and the interviewer said Donna, what did you learn with this? 
and she said, I found out, and there's no indication at that time she was a, a Christian. She said, the one thing I learned is that my mistakes affect a lot of other people, including my parents and my family and so on. And I thought, yeah, there's no such thing as a private sin. Let me just turn with me right quick over to uh, the book of Numbers. I think it's a great illustration of this. Numbers 14. That's toward the front. If you get to Deuteronomy, just keep going. One more. 14. Let me give you the context of this passage. Israel has been led out of the promised, I mean, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Moses is the, the man that's leading them. They've gone all, they've already gotten the law and they've gone up to Kadesh Barnea. And you remember the story where they were, God had promised them this land and so they were getting ready to go into the land and they send the 12 spies and the spies come back and 10 of them say, uh, listen, there's, there's big guys, it's a great land, but there's big guys in there and they'll eat our lunch. That's a paraphrase. Uh, and uh, so let's don't go. And so they refused to act upon the promise of God. And so there was the consequences was that they spent 40 years in the desert wandering around and everyone uh, 20 years old and older died in the desert in those next 40 years because God said you're not going to go into the promised land. So I want to just point out some verses here for you. 14, let's look at uh, verse 18. Let me just read through this. So God is really upset with, with Israel because they, they have acted in unbelief. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take him at his word. So in verse 18, and so, or 17, Moses is praying for him, trying to get God to not destroy him, which is what he wants to do. He says, but now I pray, this is Moses, let the power of the Lord be great, just as thou hast declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of the people according to the greatness of thy loving kindness, just as thou also hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Now notice what the Lord says in verse 20 in response. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to their word, uh, according to your word. Okay? But indeed, I will live which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to a test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall, they, shall any of those who spurned me see it. Gentlemen, there is a great illustration of God's graciousness and forgiveness relationship, but they had to live with their consequences, didn't they? Now let me just point one more verse to you to make the point I want to make now. Verse 33. And your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness 
until your corpses lies in the wilderness. He said, God said, part of the consequences is that your sons are going to have to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. See, relationship and grace isn't the issue. It's consequences. It's the law of the harvest. And so, we may have to live with temporal consequences of other sins, but God doesn't hold us responsible for them. And the, tra- and the truth of the matter is, we do, we're, all of us are living with the consequences of the actions of other people. Are we not? Our children are going to live with the national debt, are they not, that they didn't create? So, God will hold us responsible irrespective of our heritage or our circumstances. We will be judged on the basis of how we respond to four things. Our circumstances, the commandments of God, the Great Commission, and our stewardship. Stewardship, yes. Now, having this in mind, that we are living, all of us live with the consequences, are living with the consequences of other people's actions. Gentlemen, there's some real flawed thinking in our society in the area of personal or marriage counseling, even under the umbrella of the Christian counseling that says it is not your fault. You're not responsible, but your parents are, your neighbors, your family, or someone else. And so you're not responsible. We live with consequences, and those are the consequences that God is interested in how we respond to them. But there are those out there that would tell you that uh, we're not held responsible for our responses because it's the result of someone else's sin. And gentlemen, that is flawed thinking and very destructive to our walk with God. See, you and I sit here today, all of us, and we are living with benefits off of decisions that the founders of our Constitution made. Are we not? We kind of take them for granted, but that we, we're living here with that. That's part of our heritage. That's a positive one, isn't it? See, faithfulness with God is determined not by our circumstances, but how we respond to our circumstances. In the eternity... As we look back across our life, we will never regret our circumstances, but only our response to our circumstances in the form of unbelief and or sin. We have to be careful not to develop the thinking that says, because of my heritage, because of my parents or whatever, that I'm not responsible for the way I live. That's flawed thinking. That's victim mentality. And we've got a good dose of it in this country today. And that kind of thinking, gentlemen, will hinder your walk with God. See, the litmus paper for each of us, litmus test for each of us, 
in our thinking of our heritage, our circumstances, our background, what have you, is gratefulness. If I'm not grateful for my heritage or my circumstances, I'm out of focus. Let me ask you rhetorically. Are you grateful for your dad, for your mom, for whoever? My dad was an alcoholic. If he had to live life over, he's dead now, but if he had to live life over, he'd probably do some things different. But I have to tell you, he was a perfect dad. Because he's the dad that God gave me. And I talk to a lot of men that are bound up in this thinking, gentlemen. And they're, they're spiritual pygmies and will stay there until they deal with this issue and begin to honor and be grateful for their dads. And you can honor your dad whether he's dead or alive. Because that's attitude. That's a decision. So I'm eternally grateful for my dad. See, if I'm not grateful for my heritage or circumstances, then ultimately, gentlemen, my problem is not with my circumstances. My problem is with God. Because you never have a problem with another person. Ultimately, your problem is with God. Yes, we're living with the consequences of the actions of others, but we will be judged by God on how we respond to our past, present, and future circumstances. There's no such thing as a private sin. You're saved by grace through faith. A proper relationship with God is based is with with God through Christ is based upon God's initiative, God's grace. As a man sows, so shall he reap. Irrespective of God's grace, all men live within the confines of the law of the harvest. Grace and forgiveness do not negate living without consequences. What goes around does come around. Thank you, gentlemen.